this morning, you get a little window into man camp, all right? So some of you may be sitting there thinking, why on earth do I need to hear a sermon about biblical masculinity? Um, and uh, I'll just say this, I, I, I hope that this is a, a window for all of us into uh, what God is calling out of us, and, and it will be an encouragement to you, uh, let's say that you're female and you're listening to this, that this will be an encouragement to you that God is uh, stirring the men in our world towards what it means to live uh, redemptively and graciously and well in this uh, difficult struggle in which we find ourselves as human beings. And so whenever, uh, let, me, let me just back up a second because I, I realize there may be people here who were not party to the fact that our youth group had its first, not its last, but its first ever man camp this weekend out at the Lazy U Ranch. And uh, we got together with some of the young men in our youth group and some of the, uh, I guess, old men now. I guess we're old men, Craig. Um, <clears throat> young at heart. And uh, we uh, tried to engage those generational connections through some of the activities that we did and the discussions and Bible studies that we did uh, toward a, a deeper understanding of what God is calling us to as men. And so that's where this message is sort of coming out of. We talked about many of these things at the retreat, um, but uh, I just wanted to kind of bring you all in on what this calling is, what it looks like, what some of the things that we talked about. Um, I hope that it, uh, this stirs you in some good way, uh, regardless of whether it applies directly to your gender or not, uh, that this will be something that God will use to make uh, all of us uh, better understand his love for us and for our love, our call to love each other. So what I'm going to do is jump all the way back to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. I encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along, and uh, you can kind of read before and after if you want to, but uh, I'm going to, just for the sake of space and time, I'm going to excerpt a couple of passages out of Genesis chapter 2, and then we will talk about the implications of those passages for uh, ourselves as men and everyone else in our lives. So I'm going to start in Genesis 2 verse 5 and then read through verse 9 and then I'm going to jump to 15 and read through 25. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made it 
made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Biblical masculinity is not something that can be taught in a classroom. It is something that only can be caught from one man to another. As we move through life and see those around us who inspire us to be better people, as, as I look at Craig or Craig looks at me and, and one of, or both of us say that, that quality that he has, that aspect of masculinity, I want more of that in my own life. And we inspire each other, as the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man strengthens another. And this idea of biblical manhood while I would say it cannot be taught I will also say it can be informed we can put words around this idea and allow those words to shape and direct the way we live the way we relate uh, the way we um, express who we were created to be so I think back on my own adolescence and I think we all have these thoughts. They go basically something like this. What was I thinking? Right? And 
you can you can heap any number of uh, thoughts, actions, behaviors, decisions into that category. What on earth was I thinking? What was I thinking? And as I've thought about that span in my life, uh, I'll say this. It wasn't until many years after my adolescence that I looked back and realized that I, as a, as a man, as an individual, was asking a question about my own self and my own life. And the question that I think is, is in the heart of every man goes something like this. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to be a man? Do I have what it takes to make it in this crazy world? Do I have what it takes? Um, we can talk on another occasion about the question that, that a woman asks, but I would argue that it's, it's related, but not the same. And so a man is asking this question, am I enough? Do I have enough? Am I man enough? Um, and in that asking, particularly if we don't know that we are asking that question, it can drive a lot of behaviors that make us later look back and say, what was I thinking? Because we're trying to answer this sort of primordial inner question. And if we're not even sure what the question is or where it's coming from, we will act in ways that we are asserting ourselves to answer the question, but that aren't necessarily healthy for ourselves or the people around us. I don't probably need to elaborate a lot on that, I don't think. Right? We've all seen men acting badly in an attempt to answer this question, um, particularly in cases where they may not even be aware that the question is driving what they're doing. And hopefully, we have all seen men who are answering this question well, who, who know, and I'll get to this later, but who know that in Christ the question is answered and who have a peace and a rest about their uh, masculine sense of self. They're not trying to prove anything anymore. They're at peace with God and themselves. And so those are sort of the the two extremes within which most of us uh, realize and act, uh, actuate our masculinity. Um, so let's talk about Adam for a little while. And um, the first thing that comes out of this passage as it relates to Adam as a man is quite simple that God put him here, put us here, in order to bring good about in our world, 
to bring good to our world. Um, God creates Adam, breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. Adam awakens and looks about and God says, here, I'm putting you here. Make this a better place. Cultivate, work, um, engage, move, act in such a way that what comes out of your actions is fruit, is goodness. And so we are called to work toward, as men, as people, to work toward God's will. That God wills to work through us to bring about good in the world. Um, You are a part of a plan. And I want, in a weekend like we just had, I, I want our young men to understand that. That they're part of a plan. That God is up to something and he has drawn them in and called them to be part of this movement of creating good and fruit in the world. Um, You were put here to contribute. We, uh, last summer, we did a, uh, Sydney had done a, urban through urban connection on the west side urban west side of san antonio a project called opportunity inc and we got together with some urban high school kids and sydney organized like taking them to different places of business Um, so we went to uh, cisco we went to best buy and we went to uh, one of the baptist hospital systems uh, sort of like field trips with these young folks and each morning, we would start off with a short Bible study. That was my part. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, I think it was the first year we did this, and there was a young man, I can't remember his name off the top of my head because I'm a terrible person. Um, but uh, he was sitting there, and we were doing the Bible study, and we were looking at this passage. And I, you know, I, I said, well, let's talk about the implications of this. And you know, they started talking about it, and I said, you know, you were put here to make the world a better place, and this one young man just kind of swells up with pride, just like, you know, and I don't think he'd ever heard anyone say that he was part of a plan, that he had a purpose, that God had put him here for a reason, and it was a good reason, it was, it was a redemptive reason, and that he can look at his place here as a calling, as a high calling. And so I want all of us to see that we are called into the will of God as men and women, and that while we're called to work toward God's will, we're called to work with God's word or in accordance with God's word. So God creates Adam, he breathes life into him, and he sets him down in the, in the garden. And he says, make this better, work with this. And then he says, you can, you can do whatever you want. It's your garden. Just keep in mind, 
that one tree over there. If you eat of that fruit, you will gain the knowledge of good and evil. Everything will change. And there will be a day of reckoning for you when, if you choose to do that. And so God, in his very first movement toward us, gives us his will to work and make the world a better place and his word that here's the ground rule. You're free. You can do whatever you want. You can make this a better place or you can punt and mess it all up. It's, all, it's your call. Uh, but keep in mind, if you go that other route, there's sort of an irreversible consequence from that. And so this, these two rails of God's will and God's word are set before us at creation. And God's word tells us that we are to work toward what is right and to work against what is wrong. Um, what God doesn't say yet is anything about, any hint of what happens uh, after the consequences of messing it up are brought to bear on our souls. And so, <clears throat> let's just keep moving through the text for a moment. This call to bring good into the world. And then you see this sort of uh, bizarre uh, scene in here. If you weren't a little bit puzzled by it, uh, you know, whatever. Here we go. Um, God brings all these animals in front of Adam and says, name them. Right? And I think most of us read that and we go, well, that's kind of weird, whatever, big deal. Let me try to bring you into what God is doing. He is saying to Adam, you, you are in charge. You are at the pinnacle of creation at this point. There's more to come, and she's much better, but we'll get to that later. Um, but he says, you know, you're at, the, you're at the top, and that comes with a responsibility, a responsibility to move well, responsibility to know in your mind what right and wrong are. And it comes with an authority that I'm vesting in you to take care of this place that I've given you. And with all of that, God says to Adam, um, name, give names. And in ancient minds, the assigning of a name would be absolutely understood as the assigning of authority. The one who assigns the name is the one with authority. That's how an ancient mind would have understood this passage. It would have been very clear. It's less clear to us, but in antiquity it would have been abundantly clear. And so God is saying you have a responsibility uh, to bring about not only good, but order to step into situations and bring order and bring peace and bring harmony uh, to 
the world. So I want you to think about this for just a second. There was a time when Adam was it. He was the only human on earth. It was God, Adam, and everything else. He was alone. And God says to him, work, cultivate, bear fruit. And he just, I I don't know what he said, but I can kind of see him going, okay. It's hard for us to see this aspect from here. If, you know, I, I don't know a good equivalent, but if I set you set me alone in front of a, a, an impossible task, I would probably feel inadequate. I would probably doubt my ability to pull it off, or at least have a few doubts, right? Adam is without sin, and God sets him on the edge of creation and says, go. And Adam kind of says, okay, you coming with me? Yeah, all right, we got this. There's, there is a confidence that I want our young men to grow up into. Not a confidence, not a cockiness, not a, not a self-absorbed uh, confidence, but I, I want them, I want us to move into life and its situations with a godly confidence in not just themselves, but in themselves as men of God. To know that God has called you and that God has equipped you. Um, God sets Adam here and says, go. Knowing that Adam has everything invested in him or vested in him to be able to pull it off and not only that but he has direct relationship with God and so this call to bring order requires a certain masculine confidence not cockiness Um, and it's a call to move in harmony with others Um, what did God say right after Adam was standing alone on the edge of creation. That's eh, probably not going to work out real well. He needs help. Right? He looks out and says, um, I don't want him alone. That's not what this is all about. And God moves and he takes Adam, creates Eve, sets her before him and he's blown away and he's been looking at you know turtles and cows and birds and you know and then God presents Eve and he is literally blown away Um, you know one of the things we said to our young men this weekend is you know we had we had done some uh little challenges each 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 participant had a couple of challenges involved in the weekend 
And, uh, and during the discussions as we read this passage, um, I said, your, your ultimate challenge as a man is not in throwing things and, you know, whatever. It's, it's in woman. It's, it's in connecting to the heart and the soul of a woman and bringing out of her what is good and right and wonderful. And, you know, I'm sorry my wife is in the nursery today because that would be better accountability, right? Um, we don't always hit that out of the park, so to speak. But it's, it's our highest calling. Eve shows up as the final act of God's creative power. He saves the best for last. And he says, here she is. And if you thought that garden was going to be hard to cultivate, watch out, buddy. I got, I got a challenge for you. You'll never pull off by yourself. Um, no, don't say amen. You'll catch an elbow for that. Right to the head. <clears throat> we are called to move in harmony with others as men. To, you know, God wants you to know you can stand alone with him alive in your heart, the presence of God himself uh, vested in you. You can stand alone, but you can't make it alone. That's not what masculinity is and we have these these images of masculinity in our culture um one of the <laughs> this is kind of hard to believe i guess but you know you some of you sorry jake some of you may remember uh you know i think it was back in the 70s and the marlboro man commercials you know and it was one man and he was rounding up like 500 horses out in the wild, you know, wild. And it's just one man against the world. And it's this idea that we can stand alone. This is the ultimate call of masculinity. And while I do think there's some truth to that, that idea that God wants us to have the confidence we can stand alone as men with him, um, the Marlboro man misses completely this mark of connection, of relationship, of harmony with others. And so we're not talking about romantic ideals of manhood. We're talking about the reality of our calling to, to live in harmony with those around us. And so we're called as men to bring good into the world, to bring order into the world, and to bring fullness into the world. And by that I mean relational fullness. This idea of the man and his wife coming together and the two becoming one flesh and the fullness of that, the completion of that relationship for both of them. Um, and this is never more important to our young men than it is in the way that it shows up in the way we treat women. 
um, the way we honor the women in our lives. This is where true masculinity shows up, where it presents itself, where those women um, feel respected and cherished because we show respect. Um, And I put it this way this weekend as I was talking to these guys, and every woman here will understand exactly what I mean. Um, That our calling as men is about... Okay, let me start with the, the opposite. Often, in our male adolescence, the way we relate to women... Uh, works like this. What can I get from her? What, you know, if I, if I go to the homecoming dance with her, will I have better street cred with my friends? What can I get from her? What can I take from her for myself? And that becomes, too often, the basis upon which younger men relate to the women in their lives. And what God is saying is that we are to relate not according to what we can get from her, but we are to relate according to what we can gain for her. That is to be our ethic as we relate. That we look at the women in our lives in terms of how can I invest of myself How can I expend my masculine strength so that she's a better person, so that she is a more whole person, so that she has greater confidence in herself and in her God? What can you gain for her rather than from her? We're to bring fullness into the world in the way we honor and relate to the women in our lives. And we're to bring fullness into the world in the way in which we honor God. That real men don't go it alone. We stop and we pray and we relate uh, horizontally. Both. Yes. All of those. Wow. So, geometry was not my specialty. But I can parse a Hebrew verb, Rusty. Wow. Say again? No, just keep going? Okay. Fair enough. Um, that we are called to live openly and honestly before God, which none of us are good at. And, and we're going to talk next week a, l- a little bit more about Genesis chapter 3, where we've already talked about this a lot, but Adam, they sin, and God shows up, and Adam goes, this woman that you gave me, he's got fingers going in every direction other than here. And uh, that we are to be those who live openly and honestly before God. That last little verse 
Um, you know, as uncomfortable as it is for me to say naked in church, I have to look up. I can't make <laughs> eye contact with anyone. Else. As uncomfortable as that sounds, I want you to hear those words again. That the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Um, what would that be like? Because so much of the veneer of masculinity that we put on, the big truck that I drive or whatever you want to point to, um, is there to assure that my shame is not revealed. That you don't see the real me. That you don't see the sinful, selfish me or the weak, incapable, vulnerable me. But you see this image of American strength and masculinity. You get the idea. Um, we're to live openly and honestly before God, and we're to give him our shame. That, that is really where masculine strength is reborn. And so all of us as men, we know what it's like to completely fail in a relationship, in a job, on an exam. It doesn't matter. We know that feeling. We know the shame that comes with it. And rather than slapping a veneer over the shame and pretending like we're not affected by it, we're called to give that to God, to be unclothed before him, uncovered, vulnerable, real, honest. And in that, we find the rebirth of our masculine confidence when he says, you're forgiven. I, I've, I've got you covered. And I want you to step back into the ring. Um, this is a call to honor God through the way we relate to him openly and honestly, the way we give him our shame. He has shown us what a man is. Jesus did not come to this earth to gain anything from us. He came to this earth to gain everything for us. That's what a man is. That's what a man does. He gives, he sacrifices, he extends his masculine strength for the betterment of others. He has shown us what a man is and through his forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ, he has answered our question. Do I have what it takes? Because of what Christ has done for me, yes. A confident, complete unapologetic yes in Christ I have all the masculine strength I need the question is answered our souls as men can be at rest um, a few decades ago a few uh, 
retired statesmen from all over the world, and I won't mention any names because that gets everybody's political juices flowing, right? But they formed an organization, they just called it the Elders. And in their definition of, of elder, this is basically all they said. An elder is a man who has nothing left to prove. Think about that. I'm not defensive. I'm at peace. I have strength and confidence in who I am, how I've lived, whatever I've, I've messed up, I've given to God, I've laid it at the foot of his cross. He's forgiven me, and I can keep going in the confidence that he is with me. And that's ultimately what we want for our young men, for our old men, sorry, Jim, uh, is this confidence that comes only from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for this garden in which you have placed us. We recognize how badly we have messed it up, and we marvel at your grace in going to the extent that you did to forgive us, to show us what a man looks like in grace, in love, in real time, that we might know we are forgiven, that our heads might be lifted to hear you say, I love you. Lord, give us the confidence that comes from knowing your grace through Jesus Christ. And may that inspire each of us to live lives that bring about your will in this world, your good, your love, your grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen.